DW, World in Progress. With Anchor Rasper. On this show, how rich tourists change Medellin, which used to be Colombia's most dangerous city. You know, things are cheap. They can go to like clubs and they can go to really nice restaurants, things that they might not be able to do in the U.S. A lot of people that I think move here for the partying, they come here because, you know, you hear a lot that there's beautiful women. El turista dice, Tourists ask what else is there to do, implying where are the drugs and the girls. And a very concerning dynamic starts to happen when the criminal gangs gather young girls from the surrounding poor neighbourhoods to be sexually exploited for tourists. And in Honduras, international investors are building a private city. Run like a company, does that pose a threat to democracy? Prospera promises all sorts of opportunities for Honduran business people. It's a safe place where we can live, where progress is possible. Prospera could only happen because we are in an economic crisis. A country in good shape would never approve such a project. Stay tuned. Welcome to World in Progress with me, Anke Rasper. And we'll be going to check out two interesting cities in Latin America for this edition. First, the story of a huge transformation. Three decades ago, the city of Medellin in northwestern Colombia used to be the most dangerous place in the world, with one of the highest homicide rates. While the cocaine trade grew and civil war raged, drug traffickers, local gangs, guerrilla militias, paramilitary groups and petty criminals terrorized every sector of the city. Today, the city has become a top tourist destination. There's been an influx of visitors and a growing crowd of digital nomads. They come to party and stay for the year-round spring-like weather and low cost of living. But now, Medellin is staring down a wave of gentrification that's changing it completely. And while the influx of foreign money is hailed as a success story for other formerly crime-ridden cities, there are also downsides, as Luis Gallo reports for DW. In the hip Medellin neighborhood of Poblado, street walls are plastered with posters that read, quote, Medellin is not for sale. Stop gentrification. Digital nomads are temporary colonizers. And gentrifiers go home. That's Ana Valle. She's the person behind the posters. Ana is a young and charismatic activist. She's taking a stand against gentrification, fueled by the recent tourism and digital nomad boom in the city. She says foreigners used to be scared to come here. But times have changed. The city once known in the 90s as the cocaine murder capital of the world is today full of tourists. Medellin now tops the lists in travel guides and publications. I caught up with Ana as she was putting up more posters around Poblado. I asked her how this idea came up. We start noticing a general feeling of nuisance by people in Medellin, especially when we look into the dynamics of why foreigners are coming. Ana and her friends wanted to air their frustrations in a place where everyone, including visitors, could see. Because, as they see it, 
This trend has wide-ranging and worrying consequences for all of Medellin. The campaign is not xenophobic in spirit, but rather its intent is to question a system of economic privilege and the idea of temporary colonization. Medellin is staring down a wave of gentrification head-on. A noticeable influx of digital nomads, for example, is pricing out many people out of their homes. In some neighborhoods, the cost of rent has gone up by an astronomical 100%. That's double, according to research by Forbes Colombia. Digital nomads, generally people from the West who work remotely, tend to stick to safer, upper-class neighborhoods. Poblado, in Medellin, is the epicenter of it all, with fine dining, hip bars, shopping malls, clean streets, and higher-income inhabitants. But the income gap between digital nomads and the Colombian professional class is huge. And while these visitors with their dollars and euros are welcomed by many cities with open arms, their arrival tends to increase the cost of living for all residents. A lot of my friends have been affected by this, and the biggest fear in Medellin today is for your landlord to evict you from your home. Medellin locals Brian Sanchez and his wife Manuela have an art and painting studio in Manila the more artsy and bohemian part of Poblado. Recently, their landlord told them they had to leave because he needed the space. Brian tried negotiating with them. Hey, I know you are trying to kick me out because you're going to price the price. So let's talk and let's negotiate because I have been here for five years. I'm part of the neighborhood. He said, right now, I don't care. Brian loves the community they built with other galleries and local bookstore owners, but they didn't have many legal options on the table. Housing regulations in Colombia are very lax and landlords can evict their tenants with only three months' notice. It was really, really frustrating. We have a contract and we have, like, everything right, but it's impossible to fight or argument with somebody who's cutting your energy, you know? Brian tells me their landlord tried to get them out sooner by cutting their electricity and water supply. He even put locks on the front gate to force them to leave. The landlords, they know they can raise the prices. And thinking about the tourism and not thinking about the locals, they're going to have like only luxury suites and they're going to miss the cultural part of the, of the neighborhood. Critics say the same situation is happening all over Medellin, where the cost of rent has skyrocketed. A one-bedroom apartment in Poblado goes for around $1,400 U.S. Dollars a month. That's in a country where the monthly minimum wage is only $300. And locals are seeing this inflation right in front of their faces. So, when Anna started hanging her posters, it struck a chord. Anna's posters went viral on social media, trending on Medellin's Twitter. Even the city's mayor replied to her on Twitter, saying, you've got everybody talking about gentrification. And although the initiative got support from many locals, Anna got some pretty angry replies in her inbox from foreigners, too. Things like, That's why you'll always be a third world country, because you have a poor mindset. You should thank us for bringing you our dollars. I went to a WeWork in the heart of Poblado, not far from where Anna put up her posters. The scene looks like any other co-working space in Brooklyn or Berlin. Digital marketers and tech workers crowd communal tables while sipping their cold brew. English is the main language spoken into headsets and AirPods. I started talking to one of the people sitting next to me. What made you decide to come to Medellin? Yeah, just fell in love with the city. Like His that. name is Hampton Reese. 
He's a blonde-haired Texan in his early 30s. Super green. I think the culture is really, really unique and cool. Medellin is set in the middle of a steep valley of green mountains. The city feels both urban and forested, with creeks rolling down the hills and thousands of high-rise towers dotting the lush valley. Locally, it's known as the City of Eternal Spring, with a year-round average temperature of 22 degrees Celsius. Hampton says its affordability is also a big draw. Here, people talk about that a lot. You know, things are cheap. They can go out, um, they can go to like clubs and buy bottles, and they can go to really nice restaurants, things that they might not be able to do in the U.S., mm -hmm. at least as easily. So I think, obviously, the cost of living for many people that are making a U.S. salary is a big bonus. And there are a lot of people that I think move here for the partying. They come here because, you know, you hear a lot that there's beautiful women. And so I have at least seen a lot more um, male uh digital nomads than I have seen female digital nomads. I asked Hampton what he made of activists like Anna and her message for digital nomads. Interesting question. Um, I'm still processing how I feel because partly I'm part of that, right? And so I think there's some real legitimate concerns with having such an influx of foreigners. Um, cost of living is obviously, especially in like Poblado, like it's, I mean, cost of rent is skyrocketing. Other costs, so food costs have risen. So I think just basically on a pure economic standpoint, there are some legitimate concerns. Um, it's hard for me because I'm part of that, that influx. I just received the digital nomad visa, so I'll be here for at least one more year. In 2022, Colombia introduced a special visa for digital nomads. Those who can prove they are employed remotely can work in the country for up to two years. How was the process of getting a digital visa? Really fast. It took, I think, in total about 11 or 12 days from the time I submitted my application to when I received the visa, which I think is fast for any government anywhere in the world to process anything. Easy access to these visas has contributed to the post-pandemic boom, making Medellin one of the latest hotspots in the global digital nomad circuit. I wanted to know what city planners thought about the situation. The re recent uh, uh, situation and uh, challenge of Medellin related with gentrification and tourism is, is new for us. I am sure not, nobody expected that happens in the scale and how fast it is happening now. That's Alejandro Echeverri, the head of the urban planning faculty at Medellin's Eafit University. He talked to me from Barcelona, where he was attending a conference on gentrification. It's related with the transformation of Medellin from the problem of violence and inequality and improvement of the city. Alejandro is talking about the city's transformation, which came after the local government took a different approach to urban development and invested heavily in poor neighborhoods. Medellin expanded its metro system and built cable cars connecting the poor barrios to the city center. The local government also poured money into public spaces, libraries, and social programs. The, the focus at that time was how to improve the life of the people. The Medellin approach has been hailed as a success story and a model for other crime-ravaged cities. Alejandro worked in planning and implementing these projects from 2004 until 2012. They invested in neighborhoods that were the most isolated and where the cartels had previously had the most success recruiting members. But... When we start the work, nobody think to develop those works for the tourists. And these policies worked. The murder rate plummeted by 90% in Medellin, and it also gave the city a narrative that it could sell to the rest of the world. 
some projects became famous globally and so on. So this new narrative started to happen. And I think the city made a big mistake trying to increase this narrative of the most innovative city. But when we started to develop this world, the idea was not to put Medellin off the map. As gentrification intensifies, it sets off a chain reaction that displaces locals to cheaper areas, leading to a citywide increase in housing costs. The lack of affordable housing options in Medellin, for example, has contributed to a significant rise in homelessness, with rights organizations reporting an increase of almost 150% in the past three years. In Medellin, is very critical because we still have the structural problems of inequality. We need programs of housing, social housing in a big scale. At the same time, how to control and have some kind of regulation in relation with the cost of the rents and so on. Medellin hasn't done much to address the consequences of gentrification, with critics saying the local government has made the city unlivable for locals. And illegal activity is picking up. We need a more capacity for the government and the police to control the process of illegality in relation with the sexuality. I think it's a critical and urgent thing to work with as well. One place where this is becoming visible is Comuna 13, which is home to one of Medellin's most famous social urbanism projects. In 2010, the city installed a series of massive outdoor escalators running right up through the middle of the hillside community. These escalators were thought of as a transportation alternative, built for elders to transport their groceries to their homes higher up in the hills. It was never thought of as a tourist attraction. That's Daisy Flores. She's a community leader who grew up in Comuna 13, working with youth art collectives in the neighborhood. Daisy has long, straight hair and bright hazel eyes. She's sweet and soft-spoken. In the neighborhood, shootouts have given way to outdoor graffiti galleries and tours. Over the last decade, its escalators have become a huge tourist attraction. And the area flourished with big murals, gift shops and bars, and kids rapping and breakdancing. Nearly 6,000 visitors pass through here every day, most of them tourists. But next to the murals and breakdancers, there is a trend that worries locals and community leaders like Daisy. When the tour ends, tourists ask what else is there to do, implying where are the drugs and the girls. And a very concerning dynamic starts to happen when the criminal gangs gather young girls from the surrounding poor neighbourhoods, pick them up in SUVs and bring them down to be sexually exploited for tourists. Medellin's growing sex tourism industry is putting minors increasingly at risk. Earlier this year, according to one of Colombia's main newspapers, El Espectador, Two American men were convicted in New York for possession of child pornography. They filmed on their trips to Medellin and sexually exploited girls as young as 12 years old. They filmed them without their consent. And Daisy tells me how more and more girls from her art collective are being lured into sex tourism attracted by dollars and euros. Las niñas, por ejemplo, de mi organización, que son muy guapas. Girls from my theater collective are very pretty. 
The gangs come and recruit them through their girlfriends, and they can be as young as 13 years old, and tell them they have a job opportunity for them. They become an easy target for the gangs, and we can't compete with the kind of money they offer them to come make art instead. But for Daisy, there's a bigger consequence to all of this. It's a huge problem for the city because they are minors and they're dropping out of school. Criminal gangs that control the area don't just stop at exploiting minors for sex tourism. They also want a piece of the whole booming industry. These gangs also extort local tour guides and businesses around the touristy area for a hefty cut of their income. It's a very profitable business. It's a very profitable business. Tourists pay for tours in dollars and euros, and it's a painful dynamic because tour guides have to pay extortions to be able to give a tour. The gangs have become so organized that if you give a tour or open a business in the area, they approach you with a list and ask you to kindly make a payment. Daisy tells me it's dangerous to talk about these things, but she feels she has to really speak up about what's happening in her neighborhood. Daisy is committed to make people understand, especially tourists, that actions that might seem harmless to them have real-life consequences for people living in the neighborhood. It's not bad to show the beauty of the city, but it's our responsibility to talk about what's going on, and the city's future can't be one that exploits and excludes. We can all dream of the city we want to live in. We all have the right to the city, including tourists. But visitors, while they enjoy the city, also have the duty to research some of its history. Last April, Anna, the young woman with the posters, who also watched the increase in sex tourism with concern, invited people through social media to come debate the issue of gentrification. Concerned neighbors, architects, journalists, and even digital nomads joined her discussion in a public square. She says it's important to understand what's happening and have a wider discussion to come up with solutions together. Alejandro says this process will take time. So the solutions for gentrification, I must say, they are not very very clear solutions in fast time and easy ones. We are in the middle of the moment. I hope in six months' time we could see some precise actions. Medellin stands at a crossroads of gentrification and the dark side of tourism. While the city's transformation has brought economic opportunities and international recognition, it has also come at the expense of local communities. Finding a balance between booming tourism and preserving the cultural fabric of Medellin is crucial for the future well-being and inclusion of all residents. I told Hampton about Anna's invitation for people to come together and have an open dialogue about the issue. I mean, I have a lot of friends that are digital nomads, and I think the vast majority of them are interested in making sure that they're having the best impact that they can. Mm -hmm. And they want to minimize any negative impact that they can. Does that mean that they can completely eliminate it? No. And so when she has an event that brings people together to have that dialogue, both Colombians and foreigners, that's a, I think that's a healthy dialogue to have. Luis Gallo for DW in Medellin, Colombia.
lots of money. That's also a major ingredient for our next story. In Honduras, investors are building a private enterprise city. They want to run it outside the state's jurisdiction and tax laws. But not everyone is convinced that's such a great idea. But first, a quick teaser for the latest series of our award-winning environment podcast on the green fence. They're literally everywhere these days. But whether you like them or not, modern-day life would be impossible without plastics. The growth trajectory of plastics is just, for, quite frankly, scary. By 2050, we will produce between three to four times as much plastics as we're producing today. But with growing production comes increased pollution. Plastic waste is accumulating in our oceans, rivers and forests at an alarming rate. And microplastic is not just being found in our food and water, but also in our bodies. The idea that microplastics could cross the blood-brain barrier, it's just, it makes you shudder. On the Green Fences, new series on the world's growing plastic problem and solutions, wherever you get your podcasts. That's a really interesting new series. Check it out on The Green Fence. It's on all our podcast platforms. And for our second story today, we're now heading to the Caribbean island of Roatan on the northern coast of Honduras. International investors are busy constructing a private city on the island. It's a radical experiment. A city organized like a private business with its own laws operated autonomously from the state. The idea started a few years back under the former autocratic president Juan Orlando Hernández, who was strongly into neoliberal politics. He wanted so-called zones for work and economic development, and even had the law changed to promote them. In these areas, the Honduran state is not supposed to have any control, and the new city will be run like a private company. The promoters say that this way the city could be a great economic success – which is rare in Honduras. It's a country plagued by corruption, poverty and violence. But is a private city really a good idea? After all, a state is supposed to look after all its citizens and ensure their welfare. But a private company is interested in making money. So should private companies really take that role? Author Marie-Christine Böse checked it out. And her report is presented by Anne-Sophie Brenting. The idyllic Caribbean island of Huatan, off the northern coast of Honduras, home to palm fringe beaches and crystal blue waters, and a unique social experiment. Just off a dusty road, a charter city for and by investors is being built. At the entrance, a banner reads, We believe in private property. The city is auspiciously called Prospera. Property developer Eric Pizzicalis gestures towards a skeleton of a building. It will be the tallest on the island, he says. Donning orange vests and hard hats, he takes us up further into the heart of the unfinished building. Normally, a building in Huatan can have a maximum of eight floors. This will have 14, plus a view of the ocean. Different rules apply because the city is self-governed. Pizzicalis thinks this is great. He believes it will make it easier to work fast, affordably and efficiently. The development artwork promises a futuristic-looking city, nestled among the lush green vegetation of the island. Prospera promises all sorts of opportunities for Honduran business people. It's a safe place where we can live, where progress is possible. 
It's hard to ignore the no trespassing signs and security cameras that surround the Prospera building site. Honduras struggles with crime, poverty and corruption. But not Prospera. At least that's the plan. The Honduran flag flies overhead, but the city-state runs autonomously from the national government. Called a ZEDE, a Zone for Employment and Economic Development, it's an investor's utopia. It has low taxes and isn't governed by politicians, but by a board of business people who aren't democratically elected. Critics challenge the city's legitimacy, but its lawyers, including Ricardo González, cite agreements made with the previous government. It's still Honduras, but the government gave us permission to administrate a territory, so we are at liberty to create our own laws in our own interests. But are their interests in line with other people's? Back in Honduras capital, Honduran presidential commissioner Fernando Garcia is calming through thousands of pages of legal documents, which have completely enveloped his desk. The current government has tasked him with putting an end to the Prospera project. A Congress law approved in 2013 paved the way for Prospera. Garcia argues it was unconstitutional. It amounts to the creation of a state within a state. They want total autonomy their own jurisdiction, their own executive, educational and health system, their own police and urban planning system. For now, there's little to see in Prospera. Just a few employees who work in the kitchens and on construction sites. The homes are still empty. But the Prospera project has already begun improving residents, including tech workers, entrepreneurs, investors and banks, attracting them with low taxes, flexible regulations and Bitcoin as legal tender. Prospera's founder and CEO is Eric Bryman, a U.S. Venezuelan. In a rare interview, donning an official Prospera business shirt, he denied being a radical libertarian and said that Prospera is not a tax haven. Our mission is to create prosperity where it is needed most. It's not about making Switzerland richer or Germany richer. So the spillover effects are not limited by, by, by the prosperous jurisdiction. It is spilled over into the rest of the economy. Bryman believes the project as a promise of success, of job creation and yielding profit that he claims will benefit everyone. And yes, expansion is possible. Bryman says other areas in Honduras could join the project, but not everyone shares his enthusiasm. In the nearby village of Crawfish Rock, people are worried. Besides the copious palm trees, the modest village has little in common with the grand vision of Prospera. Council leader Luisa Connor says locals fear they'll be squeezed out. The city will grow like a tumor. I'm afraid of being expropriated. This is a neighboring village. We'll be the first to lose what we have. Connor doesn't believe the project will create jobs. Instead, it will just employ cheap labor, a phenomenon critics have dubbed crypto-colonialism. But Bryman rejects the criticism. Perceptions of fears, many of them legitimate fears, okay, perhaps of historical... Um, since, but there is a disconnect between the fears and the perception and the reality of prosperity. But critics still say Honduras is effectively being sold off. Outside Congress, activists are plastering the building with protest signs. A small army of police quickly converge, but it doesn't dissuade them. They're urging Parliament to put the brakes on the Prospera project. They say the government can still repeal the controversial law passed in 2013 that allowed the city to break ground. Christopher Castillo from the environmental organization ARCA says Prospera is taking advantage of the social and economic problems in Honduras. Prospera could only happen because we are in an economic crisis. 
A country in good shape would never approve such a project. Back in his paperwork-infested office, Fernando Garcia knows better than most just how non-transparent Prospera is in its dealings. He thinks radical libertarians are deliberately undermining democracy in Honduras. It was a government, a party, that allowed it to happen and caved in to the interests of radical liberal groupings who needed a blueprint for their model of a private charter city. But Prospera's founders remain undeterred. Eric Breiman insists everything has been done by the book and people have nothing to fear. Politics is a legitimate way to change course and direction. But part of the system must be to honor contracts and agreements that were legitimately entered into. The legal team says the government could face damages if it vanages on agreements. As construction continues, the first residents will soon be moving in, including startup founder Niklas Anziger from Germany. I think the advantage of markets is that they're more open to change. That makes it easier to bring about change. In general, I believe that democratic decisions have their place and they're important mechanisms in preventing dictatorships. Could entrepreneurs be fair leaders? Or do they undermine democracy? The crypto-libertarian city experiment in Honduras might soon provide answers. And this report from Honduras about the pros and cons of a private city wraps up today's show. As always, you can listen back to this and other radio episodes at dw.com slash worldinprogress. Or find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. We're back next week. For today, thanks for your interest from our studio team here in Bonn, Germany. And from me, Anke Rasper. Stay tuned and take care.